Uh, it's such an honor to be here this morning, and uh, it's exciting to see what God continues to do at New Hope. Uh, we've watched this from the beginning, and uh, to see all the different changes, and then to see Jason's leadership here, and a uh, wonderful worship experience this morning. Um, I can just see this place, in my eyes of vision, packed with people, although God has placed the exact people he wants here for today and uh, for this season in your history, and it's very exciting. Let's pray, and then we're going to read the scriptures. Our Father, we come to you, and we thank you that you've given us this gift of the scriptures, the words of Jesus, what precious words. Open our hearts to understand the way Jesus sees things, because we have to confess we don't see it the way he sees it. We need our thinking shifted. We need to do some repentance. We need to do some deep thinking about our attitudes and adjust them. Uh, We need to think about how to live in this world that seems so hostile to our message and sometimes our very person and values. Teach us from the Lord Jesus, we pray, by the Holy Spirit. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Our scripture today is a part of your series as we look at the sayings of Jesus that you heard that it was said sayings. Jesus said, you heard that it was said an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse one who would borrow from you. Uh, I listened recently to Os Guinness speaking on the Great Commission. And uh, these are not quotes from him, but it was a sense of what I was hearing. Uh, Os said that, If we are to rise to the challenge of the Great Commission, we must prepare the global south. This deals with countries such as Africa. This is the southern hemisphere. And Asia, for instance, South Asia and China and Nepal and China, where the fastest growing church is happening. It also deals with places like Central Asia, we'll talk about in a moment. But there are many places where the gospel is spreading that... Os points out, are actually pre-modern. I will get on a plane today and go to pre-modern India. And uh, we will be in places where people will live in huts. That's what he's talking about. But he says, the modern world is quickly coming to their doorstep. The leaders I work with, it wouldn't be uncommon for them to have a satellite in their house, even though they live in a slum. Um, So satellite TV. And so it's coming to their doorstep. And then he made this statement, and this made me get excited because this is what I do. He said, they, the church, uh, or they in this global south, must have a fully orbed faith in discipleship so that they can prevail. And he compares that with what happened to the American church. He said the American church has not actually prevailed. We're we're dwindling in numbers. We're dwindling in influence. 
and he believes that that is a result of a lack of a full-orbed understanding and implementation of discipleship. I'd like to introduce you to a friend of mine, um, and he's in the little circle in the center. This takes you to Central Asia in one of the uh, most persecuted countries in the world. And uh, I'll call this man John Beck, uh, which is actually a Kyrgyz name, but he's from a different country. And this was a group that I trained along with my associate on the far left upper side. Um, and uh, we were with them in March and then again in September. And uh, John Beck, um, I asked him, would you just say a word of thanks because you as a church are helping him be prepared in Central Asia to go deep in discipleship. And here's what he said. Bu Brian Douglas olib kelgan bu ta'limot men juda ham xursandman chunki bizga Brian bilan Douglas ular o'zini olib kemadi. Brian olib kemadi, Douglas olib kemadi. Ular bizga Iso Masihni olib keldi. Iso Masihni hayotini olib keldi. Bu 5 faza bizni hayotimizda bu Iso Masihga kelgandan Iso Masihni oldiga ketgingacha bu 5 ta faza bizga pundami Bu bizga har doim kerak. Bu bir yil, ikki yil, uch yildan beri men qatnashaman bu narsaga. Lekin har safar takror-takror eshitganda bu narsaga men to'ymayapman. Men uchun juda ham oz. Har safar yana chuqurroq-chuqurroq kirib boryapman va bu bizning komandaning hayotiga sekin u kirib boryapti bu faza. Isomasting hay isomasting hayoti bo'lib kirib boryapti. Shuning uchun Bu isomasi kelgingacha bu bizda fazada biz yashashimiz kerak. Bizga u fundament bo'lib xizmat qiladi. Bu hali tugamaydi. Oxirigacha biz uchun bu eng yaxshi namuna ko'rsatma. Bu isomasikning hayoti. Bu biz uchun eng zarur ko'rsatma. Faza. What our brother is saying to us is that we've walked him deeply through the life of Christ in five phases and taught him how to build the disciple-making movement. And we happen to have taken him through all five phases over actually a four-year period. So he's gone through it twice, and now he's saying to us he's going to impact six regions of his country and bring leaders together and in, in turn train them. So we're helping him to build churches that reach people for Christ, build them to maturity, equip them as workers in the harvest field, and then multiply through proven leaders. That's basically what we do. And the result is when leaders follow Jesus' uh, method, what we get is we get this kind of singing. What happens is the church comes alive and the Lord reigns and they begin to rejoice and the most many coastlands are glad. Um, and it's such a joy to hear people sing in their own language the songs of hallelujah and uh, this is a song I hear many many times
we're talking about on the map, and let me see if I can use the pointer here, is we're talking about um, this region here in Central Asia right now, and we're going to talk about India. And what I want you to note about these places is that they um, are experiencing levels of persecution. Uh, for instance, you can't really read this map, but it says at the top that Kingdom Reign works in some of the most persecuted regions of the world. And this little uh, graph down here on the left points out that where we're talking about here, where this guy was singing, is can, the gospel can be spread by covert operations only. So when I get on a plane and I go to a country, I'm a tourist. Um, what, what is also true about this re region is it's, no, it's marked by unreached people groups. India, for instance, you'll see all these little dots all over India. Those represent 40 of the 100 largest unreached people groups, people groups that have no community of faith that can demonstrate to them the love of God and preach the gospel and make disciples in their heart, language, and culture. And so we're critically um, uh, focused on the persecuted church and the most of the least reached. And this next map... Uh, simply points out uh, that it's a complex situation. Uh, down here, it points out how many heart languages we're working in and how many people. And by the way, if you're on our mailing list, and if you're not on it, just go to kingdomreign.org and sign up. You'll get this map. Uh, don't share it with anybody, but you'll get a copy of it by email. And what this points out is we're working right now in India in 12 languages, and so these are some of our leaders. Uh, we've blackened some of their faces. We probably should have blackened all their faces, but in Central Asia and then in South Asia. So um, <clears throat> having said that, I want to talk about the growth of the church in South Asia, particularly in India. One of our men leads a network in which he has said to us, now, Brian, you've been working with us 10 years, but could you take us through your training one more time, we're going to give you 30 leaders. And so we started in May, we gave them 30 leaders. They, in turn, trained 450 leaders, 15 each. Those leaders, in turn, trained 6,740 leaders. And that's to mobilize a movement of about 15,000 believers that's grown from 300 to 15,000 in the last 10 years. And so we're seeing this type of expansion of the gospel to the point where we printed for them uh, manuals at a buck apiece. We gave them $30,000, said, have at it, print our manuals, and they had to photocopy them because they didn't have enough. We currently need, in the 12 languages in India, a total of 192,000 manuals just in the next uh, 14 months, just to keep up, and I guarantee they'll say to me, that's not enough, and we've got a couple new languages we'd like to add to that because of just the complexity of South Asia with so many languages. Now, <clears throat> our passage today relates to, the, to 
to the persecuted church and the church that's just emerging under unreached people groups. And I've sort of summarized it simply right here. Jesus is saying, look, here's what you've heard was said. You've heard that was said is the most important thing is justice. And that's true. Justice is important. And the Old Testament teaches it. But I want to flip this and have you take a little bit deeper look at what the law is trying to say. And he goes deeper and he says, I say to you three things. I want to talk to you about when people slap you. I want to talk about when people take you to court and sue you. And I want to talk about when people force you to do what you don't want to do. I want to talk about your response of giving to those who don't deserve to receive. And so that is a message for the persecuted church. Let me explain what I mean. Uh, The world watch list, um, the country here, number 11, uh, you can read this. I don't really want to say it in case this gets broadcast. But you'll see that because of religious nationalism, they've moved to 11th in the most persecuted countries in the world. And then the other country that we've been talking about this morning is on the 17th. That used to actually be higher on the list, but it's been taken over by South Asia. Um, And I want to talk to you about um, the story that I just heard uh, of the man that thanked you and what happened to him last May, and he just updated me on the story a few weeks ago in September. So I'll call him John Beck. And uh, John Beck um, has a 16-year-old son. And his 16-year-old son plays soccer with a friend of his who's Muslim. Now, most people in this area are Muslim. And there are less than 0.01% Christian. So his son was building this friendship. Well, his Muslim friend over a period of three months, began to have dreams. And he didn't know who this was, but a man in a white cloak would approach him and would speak tenderly to him and say to him he loved him and hug him. And he also had dreams of John Beck's entire family going to heaven, and he had dreams of people going to hell. And this bothered him so much that he went to the Muslim cleric the imam, because he was a a strong Muslim boy. And he said, what do these mean? And the imam said, the prophets do not speak through dreams. You must, God must be telling you to pray the prayer, the namaz, ritually seven times a day as every good Muslim does. He wasn't satisfied with the answer. So he went to his friend's house, John Beck's son, And all the kids were there, and the mom was there, and he starts to explain his dreams, but he wants to talk to John Beck. But he can't help it. It, He pours out these dreams. And when he explains these dreams, the five kids, they say to him, we know who that is. That's Jesus. And if you read the Injil, which is the New Testament um, in, in Arabic, if you read that, actually, in your national language, if you read it, Jesus will speak to you. Well, he said, I'm seeking after God. I want to hear God speak to me. But can I talk to your father? 
a few days later, he got the opportunity to talk to him. Now, the father knew that if he had a conversation with his son, it was illegal to proselytize, and if he proselytized a minor, he would be put in prison. He'd already had one incident with the government, and this would be number two, and he knew what it would mean. So the boy comes to him. He explains his dreams, and he says to the boy, God is calling you to himself. He prays, dear Jesus, I pray that this boy, um, I'll call him Murdoch, okay, that Murdoch would put, would, would understand who you are, reveal yourself to him. And then the boy prayed. And then the boy said, do you have any books I can read? Knowing that he was risking um, his life, he gave him a copy of the New Testament. And the boy couldn't put it down. And it began to revolutionize his life. And he kept asking for John Beck. I want to talk to John Beck. Well, we can talk to you, the boys would say. No, I want to talk to John Beck. And he would tell John Beck, what God was teaching him. The Holy Spirit was just teaching him. And John Beck um, would just listen and say, that's great, wonderful, that's great. And he would do this on several occasions. Two years passed. The boy is 18 years old. We happened to be in the country when this happened. We got word, we had just seen John Beck, and we got word that he had been taken to court. What had happened is the family saw the change happening in, in their son's Murdoch's life. And they began to explore what was going on, and they found out the boy had an angel, and they found out the boy had a book in which he was writing poems about God, and they had wondered because he was always talking about God. And so they told the boy, and they said, you need to repent and return to Islam. And they couldn't talk him into it, and they brought in the community leader. Every neighborhood has a community leader. And he couldn't talk him into it. And he said to the oldest son of the family, the father was an alcoholic, so he said to the oldest son, you need to get this boy in line. And the oldest son, being 41 years old, couldn't talk Murdoch into any changes. And finally, they thought, you know what? This has got to be John Beck. John Beck must have done this. And they went to his house, and with uh, Murdoch standing there, they accused John Beck. They said, you did this. He's a minor. You gave him this book. What are you doing? And he said, talk to the boy. He's 18 years old. He's old enough. He can explain to you what happened. And they began to hit him. And they said, we're going to file charges. And they left. And they said, now listen to their son. Before they left, they said, are you going to follow Jesus? Or are you going to follow, you're going to be a Muslim? And the boy said, I'm going to follow Jesus. They said to John Beck, they said, then he's yours. We don't want him anymore. You've got a new son. And they left him there. Three days later, the police came to John Beck's house when he wasn't home. Murdoch was in his room. And they came without knocking on the door. The door was opened. They began to search Murdoch's room. They confiscated books from him and some photographs, and they called John Beck and said, where are you? Get here right away. When John Beck came, they put him and Murdoch in a police car, and they took him to the police for questioning. After questioning John Beck and, uh, in, in the presence of Murdoch and his whole family, John Beck's family was not allowed to come, um, <clears throat> they finally put 
Murdoch in a room alone. And they began yelling at him and beating him and asking him to make a confession. It was kind of like the old communist, you know, day, like they say, write the paper. You know, I want you to write a confession. Tell what you did. Tell what John Beck did to you. And the boy refused. And John Beck was in another room, and he could hear this, and he didn't know what to do, and he got upset, and he walked right into the room, and he said, this is against the Lord and against the law, and you will stand before the law and the Lord on this. And of course, the police separated him and let the family go and said to John Beck, he said, you are going to write your statement now, or you're not going to leave here. After seven hours of questioning, they let him go home after he wrote a statement but he wrote the truth. He wrote what happened. When he got home, he was taking a shower, and the Lord said to him, he just knew that this wasn't going to turn out well. He told his friends, he said, I I just sense this is not going to turn out well. And they said, oh, no, they just will slap some little fine on you. It'll be fine. You know, the government's changing. We have a new new president. Things are different now. And he And and the Lord said to him while he was showering, the Lord said to him, go as a lamb to be slaughtered. When he went to the courts, his family was not allowed there. He had his attorney. His attorney pled the case. Um, All Murdoch's family was there, but it was all organized. It was a set decision before he walked in the room. And the judge got angry at his attorney and said, listen, there's other people in this room that need need me to hear their cases. This will be a $16,000 fine, which would be equivalent. This was a $1,600 fine, which would be equivalent to $16,000 in our economy. $1,600 fine, 15 days in prison, take him. He never got to see his family, and he was taken to jail for 15 days. In jail, he was put in a room underground where there was only a very, very small window. 12 men were in the room sleeping like sardines, no furniture, no bed, nothing. And everyone was smoking. He's not a smoker and he couldn't breathe and he thought he was going to die. And he cried out to God, God, why am I here? Why did you put me here? I don't know if I can live. You're the only one here. What do I do? They he became so bad that they finally took him out for a short time, gave him some fresh air, gave him some kind of medication, put him back in. But the same thing happened. And then at the beginning of the second day, a miracle happened. The, jail, the chief jailer who had never come to this, this jail shows up, walks into the cell and looks at, at John Beck and says, what's the problem? And John Beck explains And he says, are you a singer? And John Beck says, yes. He said, sing a song for me. And John Beck sings. And he turns to his two aides and he says, do you hear this man? This man is a singer. We must get him out of this jail. He is going to sing to the nations. Yeah, wow. He is going to sing to the nations. And so they put him in his own cell. And like Joseph he becomes the chief of his little cell. Only non-smokers allowed. (laughs) And he becomes also the person 
that calms the entire jail down because he begins to sing. Patting on a book, he begins to drum out his songs so that the women in the jail nearby who had been fighting and screaming and there'd been one time in the middle of the night, a man had demons shrieking out of him and in his cell and there was all this upset. And, and so John Beck was just praying for peace in that cell and he was beginning to sing his songs and the women could hear them and they would say, sing this song, sing this song, sing it again, play it again. And peace began to come over that whole jail cell. He began to witness He began to counsel men. Muslim men were there praying the namaz, you know, and and yet they were listening for the first time to the gospel. And he was caring for these men and caring for their concerns. They were still laying there like sardines. And uh, when one guy would come into the cell, he would wait for somebody to get up so he could lay down. But he was chief of his cell now. And he was excited because he had a ministry. But on day eight, a terrible thing happened to him. The chief of police walks in and says, you're free to go now. Your attorney has pled your case, and you have gotten justice. Go home. And John Beck looked at him, and he said to the Lord, Lord, I just got started. I've only been here eight days. I was supposed to be here 15 days. How can I leave? And the men gave them their, their, addresses, his ad, their addresses and phone numbers. And later on, they would call him. And then on the way out of the jail, he talked to the chief jailer. And he said, you know, this prison has nothing to do. You should have some books in this prison, like a library. I can bring you books. And the chief of the jail, jail, the jail said, you know, we're building a new jail right next door. And uh, I'm going to put a library in it. And yes, you can bring some books. And could you sing for the men? And he said, yeah, I can. He said, give me your address. And he wrote down John Beck Singer and wrote his, his, his phone number and address down. What God can do um, when you follow Jesus' way of thinking about oppression um, Jesus said, you've heard it was said, justice prevails. And yes, justice matters. And that's a whole nother message. A whole nother message about justice and about what to do if you're, for instance, sexually abused. And there's a lot of difficult situations here, okay? So what we need to do is we need to hear the essence of Jesus saying, there are other options. Justice matters. You know, Micah says, It talks about loving justice and doing mercy. Justice matters, but there are other options. And Jesus says, look, um, I I actually modeled a different option. You heard that it was said an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil which hearkens us to Jesus in the garden says, who says, my father, if this cannot pass, if it cannot pass that evil men will will hang me on a cross, then unless I drink it, your will be done. And so Jesus was one who understood what he was talking about when he interpreted the law saying, there are different options. Consider how the Spirit might lead you 
in different ways of response that are supernatural, that baffle the world. The government was baffled by John Beck's response. It was ridiculous to them. And it's ridiculous to us if you look at the options for us to respond, if we don't want payback, if we don't want our day in court, if we don't want a voice in the public square. I shouldn't say it that way, but, but if we can't get a voice in the public square, what are the other options for response in hostile and resistant cultures? And so Jesus says, if anybody slaps you and they spit on him, and took a reed and struck him on the head. And you remember how they, they slapped him and, they, and, and he was blindfolded and they said, prophesy, who hit you? Jesus understood firsthand what to do. If anyone slaps you, he says, he says turn the other cheek. Again, we're talking about a principle to be applied to a unique situation as the spirit of God leads you. It doesn't mean justice doesn't matter. It doesn't mean you do, do not go to court. The Apostle Paul used the judicial system and went to Rome to get his rights as a Roman citizen. But Jesus is saying, the law goes deeper than that. Let me show you. If anyone sues you, they take you to court and they want your shirt, that's the inner garment. Will you give them the outer, more expensive garment? Give them your tunic as well. And it reminds us of Jesus who gave everything he had, and they cast lots and divided his garments. It almost brought me to tears thinking today of how much my Lord loved me in that he said, go ahead, take everything I have, divide it up among yourselves, play a game of dice to see who's going to win my possessions, take it all. And we're in, I'm going into countries where people have taken it all. I hear time after time, the police came into my, my house and they took my computer and they kept it. And they took 250 of my books and they kept it as evidence against me. And Jesus is saying, hey, there's another option. If they take you to court, if they treat you unjustly, you can say, hey, take my shirt well, that's ridiculous. That baffles the world. But Jesus says, is saying there's another way of seeing it. And if anyone forces you, you ever been forced to do something that you don't want to do? You get forced. You're forced to walk a mile. In this case, the, uh, the government at that time, sometimes a dignitary would come through and they would ask them to walk a mile before the dignitary. And then they would force them to walk too. And so this is the cultural context. And it hearkens back to Jesus, and when they had mocked him and stripped him of, the, of his robe and put clothes on him, they led him away. They led him away as a captive forced to crucify him. It was not his will, but he said, not my will, but thine be done. Go ahead. I will allow them to, even though I could call down 10,000 angels, I will allow them to force me on that cross and I will be like a lamb going to slaughter. And I will give myself fully for the cause of those I love. And Jesus ends this passage, and it's kind of like he changes topics almost. And it's kind of hard to understand. You need to do some thinking about it. But it says, now, when people come and they, they want to borrow money from you, and I have this happen all the time when I travel because I work among the poor, would you loan me money? 
and I don't always say yes. But Jesus is saying here, you go ahead and, and lend him that money. Um, when people need things from you, the one who begs, you've been around beggars, go ahead and give it to him. I think what Jesus is saying is, look, there's a time when helping hurts. There's a time not to give. But there's a time when you do something ludicrous because you're led by my spirit to give. And that's the essence of what Jesus did. For God so loved the world he gave. The father gave his son. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and gave up his spirit for you and me. And so what Jesus is really saying is he's saying, look, we live in a world where the scales are not balanced. And so when you're slandered, um, 1 Peter 3, 6 says, when you're slandered, those who you revile your good behavior. I just realized I'm not even using these slides. This is so irritating. Um, let me just show you where we've been here, okay? If anyone slaps you, if anyone takes your shirt, if anyone forces you to walk a mile, this is the way you review the sermon, right? If anyone, then give to the one who begs and to the one who would borrow. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son and Jesus cried out and gave his spirit for us. Okay, we're together now. Um, <clears throat> you can't actually operate two things and I can't multitask on anything. Um, so, but uh, it's 11.04. What time do we need to be done? I'm watching the clock here. Um, I'm gonna not take my time. I'll finish up. <laughs> How do we live in a world where the scales are not balanced? That's the world we live in, isn't it? First Peter instructs us that those who revile your good behavior, you can put to shame by, by being good. And it is better to suffer for being good if that is God's will than for doing evil. Therefore, those who suffer according to God's will um, will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Now, um, I'm going to play this. I'm doing the same thing here again by mistake. But I'm going to play this because it's a reminder, too, of the song that needs to be played. So there is a song that needs to be played in our culture. They need to hear the song again. And the question is, is there any song we're singing that our culture can hear anymore? because they so associated us with a certain movement, with a certain political branch, with a certain bigoted viewpoint, that they don't hear our song anymore. There has to be something that's sung louder. There has to be a gospel song. And this is the gospel song. Not just music, but a lifestyle that says... I'm willing to go to prison for the gospel. I'm willing to suffer. I'm willing to be misunderstood. I'm willing to take the gospel to those who will reject me and ridicule me. And I just want to say, friends, <clears throat> that it's not just Asia's day. Uh, you know, we might think it's Asia's day now. The gospel is spreading rapidly in Asia. But it's our day. And we uh, need to play the music in our current culture, in a way that people can hear it. Um, <clears throat> as we think about this, uh, Os Guinness was uh, telling about an interview where Richard Dawkins uh, was, was debating with someone, and the guy said to him, listen, here, the problem is, Richard, 
Richard, of course, is an atheist, okay, kind of world's renowned atheist. He said, they said, he said, the problem is, Richard, you don't hear the music, you're tone deaf. And Dawkins said to him, oh, you're right, I am tone deaf. But the problem is, there's no music. And I got to ask, is there any music? I got to ask, is the church playing the music that gets the culture's attention? Because it's not won by good arguments. If you go to the Muslim world, you don't convert Muslims by good arguments. You convert them by love. Jesus converts them by love. And so it's not Asia's day. We in America need to learn from Asia how to win people and say it's America's day. And we need to go back into our businesses, into our world, and see lives transformed by the gospel. This was a private baptism in a pool that I got a chance to take a picture of in a country where it's illegal to be baptized. And uh, with this, I'm going to kind of hand off to Jason because we're going to talk about some prayer requests for kingdom reign. Go for it, Jason. Just wanted to spend a few minutes as we close. Uh, I'm going to invite up the worship team and uh, just want to pray for uh, for Brian and for Kingdom Reign. Uh, specifically, 